everyone, Jess Mason here with C3 Pediatric Fever. C3 is comprehensive core curriculum. Now I have to give a little bit of explanation here. The original episode on the same topic was recorded in 2018. That was before Corpendium existed, and it was also before these latest guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics were published, because that happened in July of 2021. So this episode has been extensively revised to be in line with current guidelines and in a little more alignment with the Corpendium chapter. I have to start with a little bit of historical perspective, and it's explained very well in the introduction section of the AAP article. And that article is called Evaluation and Management of Well-Appearing Febrile Infants 8 to 60 Days Old. So here is why this is such a detailed deep dive into this topic. In the 1970s, it became apparent that group B strep infections were progressing and causing serious infections in neonates. Things like bacteremia and meningitis, bad stuff. Now, neonates don't have reliable physical exam findings or lab tests to exclude serious bacterial illnesses. This led to a lot of testing, treatment, and hospitalizations of neonates and young infants with fevers who otherwise looked well. And then the opposite happened. There was iatrogenic harm from these hospitalizations and treatments in a lot of babies who actually didn't end up needing it. So this led to a lot of investigations to try to develop clinical prediction tools to guide us towards which babies needed what types of testing, including all those invasive tests like lumbar punctures that we don't want to have to do unnecessarily, and things like antibiotics. Over the next 20 to 30 years, there were many attempts to develop clinical prediction tools to try to figure out things like who was truly at low risk, who did actually need invasive testing, who needed antibiotics and admission. So you may have heard of some of these, the Boston criteria, the Rochester criteria, the Philadelphia criteria. Then in 2016, something called the step-by-step pathway was validated and many of us started using that. But there were some big problems here. First of all, many clinicians were really not using any of these or combining them in a way that was not evidence-based. And yet, this didn't change outcomes. So the American Academy of Pediatrics worked with the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the AHRQ, to produce an evidence-based approach. Another important reason for these new guidelines is that pathogens have changed a lot over time. So now pregnant women are screened for group B strep. Strep pneumoniae immunizations are very common, and there's far less listeria infections due to higher food safety standards in place. So now the most common pathogen in neonates is E. coli. Because there's been such significant changes in the types of pathogens infecting neonates, it doesn't make sense to apply the same prediction models and empiric treatment of the 1980s to infants today. Another thing that has significantly changed is testing. For example, inflammatory markers. We can now check for CRP and in many emergency departments, procalcitonin. The older prediction models relied on white blood cell count, absolute neutrophil count, and bandemia, but these are far less reliable in E. coli infections compared with group B strep. And once again, E. coli is now the top dog, most common pathogen in neonates with bacteremia. Pathogen identification has also changed over time. It's become much faster with newer technology, and some types of PCR can actually identify a pathogen in as little as one hour. Viral testing, this is now widely available, and it's still a little bit unclear how this should affect workup and management. So this will be an area for future research. 
Now, I want to finally mention this idea of risk stratification based on age, because this is how the episode is structured, and this is how we think about the workup of febrile neonates. It might sound crazy to follow different recommendations when a neonate is 21 days old versus 22 days old, and in fact, it kind of is, because clearly nothing magical happens overnight. But the reason why we do that is because the rates of bacteremia are highest in newborns, and then with each week of life, they decrease stepwise. So with that background in mind, here is what you're going to hear in this episode. First of all, an extensive revision of the original episode first published in 2018 to now incorporate the AAP guidelines. So you're going to hear a mix of some of that original interview I did with Eileen Claudius and some of the interview that Jesse Werner did with Eileen Claudius on the new AAP guidelines. And we're going to attempt to follow the corpendium chapter, which means we always start with approach to the critical patient. That is not at all the focus of the guidelines. The guidelines focus on a well-appearing infant. So we're going to talk about the sick ones first. Then we'll do key concepts and pitfalls. And then we're going to follow an age-based discussion of fever and well-appearing infants going one age group at a time, 0 to 7 days, 8 to 21 days, 22 to 28 days, and so on. I want you to remember two things as you listen to this. First of all, all clinical prediction tools have inclusion and exclusion criteria, so you can only apply these under the right circumstances. Second, do not feel you have to memorize all of these branch points in these algorithms. That would be nuts. Just look them up as needed. I want you to listen for the big picture message. And with that, let's get into C3 pediatric fever. Approach to the critical patient. So we got to start with resuscitation because that's always the biggest fear. A young child comes in and they look toxic. And it's almost like this foreign concept. Like we know what to do when there's an ill adult, but when it's an ill baby, it's like, oh my God, it's this panic. Um, but really, it's basically the same stuff that you do for an adult, right? It is absolutely the same. ABC, IV, O2, monitor, glucose. It is the same thing that you would do in an adult. It is done a little bit differently, obviously, because this is a small neonate. You may be getting a neonatal warmer to, you know, put the monitoring on the baby. You're obviously going to need different sizes, but it's going to be the same process in general. In terms of the glucose, I think that's an important thing to know. There's this rule of 50s where everything multiplies out to 50. So if you were hypoglycemic, I would give you one amp of D50. One times 50 is 50. If you were a kid, like a school-age kid, I could probably get away with D25. And for that, I would give you two mLs per kilo. So two times 25 is 50. But for the neonates, we have to give them a very dilute gluc dextrose solution. And so that's going to be D10. And so again, it needs to multiply out to 50. So I'm going to give 5 mLs per kilo of the D10. 5 times 10, 50. So just kind of the reverse of what you would do with an adult, but the same principle. Okay, so we got the rule of 50, 5 cc's per kilo of D10, 2 cc's per kilo of D25, and one cc per kilo of D50. And we'll put a chart of this in the notes so you can look it up quickly. Okay, so we've covered ABC, IVO2 monitor, glucose. How about fluid resuscitation? I typically start with 10 ml per kilo boluses in the neonates because remember, you're just looking at a sick kid. That's very undifferentiated. It absolutely could be neonatal sepsis. Could it be a cardiac condition? Sure it could. So I'm gonna start slow and I'm gonna reassess frequently. If it's an older kid, maybe a 90-day-old, I might just go ahead and start with that 20 ml per kilo bolus, normal saline, just like you would do to support the circulation in an adult. 
And if that's not enough to support the circulation, I'd move on to something like epinephrine or norepinephrine. And then just like in adults, you're also going to include empiric antibiotics or antivirals, depending on what you think is going on. Now, here's one area that is different from adults, and that's when it comes to managing the airway. Of course, if they need a definitive airway, if they need an endotracheal tube, intubate them. But we have this other option in young kids, which is the high flow, humidified, warmed oxygen. Yeah, I don't think that it's that different than adults. We do a lot of non-invasive positive pressure stuff in adults. Kids will tolerate BiPAP. It's obviously much easier to throw BiPAP on an adult. That's what typically most of the circuits and masks are designed for. Sometimes kids don't love those masks. But high flow oxygen by nasal cannula, and if you can heat it and humidify it, even better. You can crank that up and give them a little bit of peep that way. You can get better oxygenation. And so it's a nice non-invasive way to support the ventilation in a child who's struggling just a little bit. And for kids with bronchiolitis, where this has been mostly studied, it often is definitive airway management until they improve. And you'll see this used in one of the cases that we're doing in this episode. And a video is also up about what high-flow nasal cannula looks like. Chapter 2 key concepts. Babies are so hard to assess, especially the younger they are, right? They're incredibly difficult to assess. And actually, it's not even that. I mean, when you get right down to it, babies are easy to assess. They don't do much. So you look at their breathing, you look at their general appearance, you look at their capillary refill and their circulation and how they respond to their environment. Do they cry when you stick them? The problem is not only the difficulty in assessing, The problem is even when they look good on your assessment, they could still have something bad. And then the other problem is that infants, it's always been like taught to me, like they have these immature immune systems. They're not sophisticated and they can't contain an infection. And it's never really been explained to me, like, what does that mean? Like they can't contain an infection, like you have a urinary tract infection, therefore you also may have meningitis. But They actually don't have as developed of certain types of immune cells like their neutrophils, their macrophages and their antibodies. They don't have as much activity of those types of cells. And that's why an infection that should just be in the bladder in an adult sort of sneaks out and can cause infections elsewhere. Yeah, I like to think of them as very, very small elderly people, (laughs) just like you're probably Mm -hmm. not going to get urosepsis no matter how negligent you are about going to the doctor. But an 80 year old very likely is if they don't get treated expeditiously. And very small infants are very much like that 80-year-old. They are likely to progress through the urinary tract infection to urosepsis or to bacteremia a little bit more quickly. And also equally difficult to assess. Yes. They're like little demented adults. We don't even need to do this. It's exactly the same. (laughs) This should just be elderly fever. But what we're really talking about here is the concern that these babies, you know, they may look well but they still can have something really dangerous going on. They can have an invasive bacterial infection like meningitis. And so that's why we're doing these big workups that sometimes seem like overkill, but it's those dangerous things that can easily be missed that we don't want to miss. Let's do some definitions. Fever. The first definition is fever. What actually is a fever? There is a specific temperature cutoff that has now been defined in the latest AAP guidelines, and that is 38.0 degrees Celsius. In Fahrenheit, that's 100.4. Why is this so exciting? Because in previous criteria, they did not necessarily use the same temperature cutoff to define a fever. So now, let's just keep it simple. It's 38 Celsius. 
neonate versus young infant. The next couple of definitions are neonate versus young infant. Now, these do not appear in the latest AAP guidelines, but I'm going to go ahead and leave this in here just for a little bit of context. And I think these terms are still used quite a bit. Eileen, what is a neonate versus a young infant? So a neonate is pretty clear. That's going to be zero to 28 days old. And certainly we've had kids that came into our ED as a neonate and then left our ED, I guess, as a young infant because we just had kept them there waiting so long. And that definitely can happen. Young infant is usually going to be less than 90 days old. Some people will use 89. Some people will use 56. So that's a little bit fuzzy. Age adjusted for prematurity. Another thing to define is this concept called age adjusted for prematurity. This is the idea that let's say that your baby was born at 36 weeks instead of 40, so four weeks early. So now if they come in at 10 weeks, you would consider that baby to be six weeks old instead of 10 weeks old. So you're just subtracting off the number of weeks that they were born early. But there are problems with this. Okay, so that's good when you're talking about developmental milestones. But if you're talking about fever, well, first of all, it hasn't been studied in this context. And second of all, I don't know that it's accurate to say that the baby's immune system develops with their adjusted age versus their chronologic age. If you have a kid that was born at 30 weeks and they come back to you two and a half months after birth, you're still treating them like a neonate. That doesn't seem appropriate. I don't think this kid is going to have bacteremia from something they acquired through the birth canal two and a half months ago. Right. I hope not. (laughs) Now, does that mean I ignore someone's prematurity? Absolutely not. Prematurity is a huge risk factor for a lot of stuff, including infections. Not only might the kid have been exposed to infections causing them to be premature, could their immune system be a little bit less developed? Possibly it could. They probably spent some time in the NICU or the newborn nursery at least, so they had plenty of time to pick up hospital-acquired pathogens. There's a lot to worry about, and I definitely take prematurity into account. I just don't technically do this correction. Definitions really do matter. So neonate is 0 to 28 days. Young infant is 28 to 90 or 89 days. Then there's a problem of prematurity, and all of these studies actually exclude premature infants, so you can't really do what a lot of people do, which is, how premature are you? Four weeks? Take four weeks off your age and then apply the rule. You can't really do that. It's not validated, but uh, I don't know what to do. Apparently, not many people do. Like, nobody. But some factoring in of prematurity is obviously important, gestalt-wise, as it were. Bacterial infections. Serious bacterial infection and invasive bacterial infection. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with invasive bacterial infection, just because that one's a lot easier. That's typically bacteremia or meningitis. You have some body fluid that I need to access through a needle and that is infected. And those are the more serious ones that we worry about. Serious bacterial infection is more of an umbrella term that includes both bacteremia and meningitis and definitely UTI as well. Now, depending on the source, some people will also include enteritis. Some people will include pneumonia. Some people will include deeper infections like osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. These are not ubiquitously included. And for the most part, when I think of serious bacterial infection, I'm thinking mostly UTI, bacteremia, meningitis. Common misconceptions. Okay, how do vaccines factor into this? What about this concept of like, mom says they just got their vaccines and now they have the fever? Yeah, that's tough because vaccines do take a little while to work. It's the same concept, you know, people who get amoxicillin, they give one dose and they come back because the ear pain's not gone. Like the vaccines aren't going to work later that day. So that is one issue. If you got your vaccine today, you are probably not protected against those pathogens. In terms of fevers from the vaccine itself, 
the new AAP guidelines actually excluded children who had gotten immunizations within the last 48 hours because of the greater than 40% incidence of fevers after getting these vaccines. So what do we do with these kids? Well, I think if it's a high-risk kid or a really high fever, I would treat it as I would a child who had not just received a set of vaccines. If the kid comes in at 38.1, 38.2, looks wonderful and has no risk factors, I'm probably going to be a little bit more generous. This episode's focused on fever and infants, but that can miss some sick kids on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that people underestimate hypothermia. One of my mentors, Maureen McCullough, tells a great story about walking in and seeing a child covered with heating pads. And she said, what is going on? And the kid was really, really quite hypothermic. And the concern was more focused on warming the child up than investigating the issue causing the hypothermia. I mean, in many ways, these are just like adults. We find an adult down in Southern California. We recognize that it's unlikely to be environmental hypothermia. And we think about things like sepsis. Sometimes we don't do that in neonates. And I know that little babies can lose heat easily. That having been said, if you have a kid that's hypothermic, consider that just as you would a fever as a risk factor for bacteremia or for one of the serious bacterial infections. So hypothermia in a little kid is just as bad as fever. Why are they cold? Are they septic? But Jess is about to ask a question that has been asked for millennium by physicians, by students, by all levels of clinician. This is fundamental. Heads up. Ding, ding. Hello. Are you listening? This is key. Now, here's one you probably never see. Kid comes in. Mom says, fever at home. But they check in. We get a rectal temp. No fever in the ED. What do you do with that? The first thing that I ask is, did the parent take the temperature at home? And how? And what was it? Because there's three very different categories of kids, right? There's the kid who has the fever in the ED, and then it's a no-brainer. You know that's a fever. There's a family who took the temperature appropriately, so a rectal temperature or an oral temperature, a pacifier temperature, that sort of thing, and they documented a fever at home. I would take that seriously. When you look at the literature, a kid who has a fever in front of you in this younger age group has about an 18% risk of a serious bacterial infection, whereas if they had the fever documented as an outpatient, but it's not present in the emergency department, that takes that down to about an 8% risk. 8% risk, I am still working up. That is unquestionably the mom or the dad took the time to take the temperature. I'm calling that a fever. The group that's really tough, though, is that third group. The group that touched the child, felt like they might have a temperature, didn't give antipyretics, or maybe they did, and now you have a kid in front of you without a fever. To some extent, it is provider-dependent how much you want to believe the parents. I was always taught the parents know when their kid has a fever, and you need to believe the parents. And that's true. Parents are very sensitive in terms of deciding if their kid has a fever. They're rarely going to say, no, my child is completely afebrile when the kid has a sky-high fever. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is one of the few situations in medicine that we're not talking about sensitivity. We're talking about specificity. Are they overcalling these fevers? And in truth, the specificity of parents is close to 50%. And there have been some good studies. Like I read a great study where they literally had kids in triage. They asked the parent, touch your child. Tell me if your kid is febrile. And then as soon as they gave an answer, they took that kid's temperature right then and there. The specificity is fairly low. It's really, it's a coin toss whether or not that child had a fever just because the parents are saying they did. 
So you have a couple choices. I wouldn't totally blow it off because half of them are going to be correct. You can keep the kid there for a while, observe them, do serial temperatures, teach the family to do temperatures at home. That's what I normally do. Or you can just believe them and go with the workup. Okay, here's another one that I hear sometimes. Kid has a fever. Kid gets some antipyretic. And then the fever goes away. Therefore, I don't need to be worried. They're fine. And that's not true at all. Not true not at true. all. That merely proves that antipyretics work. They do yes. what they're supposed to do. They have one job and they do it, <laughs> which is great because a lot of people have one job and they don't do it. But <laughs> antipyretics, they have one job and they do it. That does not change whether or not that child is bacteremic. Okay. And then another common misconception is what this term occult bacteremia means. So when we're talking about occult bacteremia, we're talking about something that's occult. So it's not apparent. They don't look ill, right? Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard the phrase, I don't think the kid has occult bacteremia because they look well. And you can't have occult bacteremia <laughs> if you don't look well. Like that is the definition. Occult bacteremia is the child that looks fantastic. You're looking at this kid thinking there is no way the child is bacteremic, but yet they are. A kid who is ill-appearing, has a 10-second capillary refill, is altered in renal failure, and septic, who's bacteremic. That's not a cult. My, my mother <laughs> no. would be concerned that that child had a serious bacterial infection. A cult bacteremia is defined as a kid who looks well, and you would not suspect that by looking at the child. And that's about 20% of all bacteremia. Finally, another misunderstanding that comes up frequently is about blood cultures. So I know you feel strongly about this. If I'm going to poke the kid for labs, should I get blood cultures? I don't know why else you're poking the child. I mean, if we're talking about the febrile infant, certainly if somebody is septic appearing, you do want to look at their renal function and their liver labs and see about these other markers of end organ failure. Of course, there are other reasons. But really, the crux of the issue is you want to find out if they have bacteremia. That is why you're poking most children who have a fever. So to not get the definitive test that really answers the question that doesn't make any sense. And at a very minimum, if you are somebody who likes to look at your CBC and then decide about a blood culture, which is not my practice, but if that's your practice and you're sticking to it, no matter what we say here today, then just at least get the blood culture and walk around with it till you get the rest of your labs. Because sticking somebody twice, I, I don't know. I mean, toddlers are a hard stick. They often need three or four pokes to get blood. Do you really want to stick somebody's kid eight times? And I wouldn't want it done to my own kid or even to me. Ah, now here is a change that came with those 2021 AAP guidelines. And that is, if you're drawing blood because you're following the algorithms, in many cases, you're going to order inflammatory markers. Which inflammatory markers, you might ask? Well, if you have procalcitonin available, then that's going to be the one. Procalcitonin has higher specificity for bacterial infections than the other inflammatory markers, and it tends to rise more quickly than the other inflammatory markers. If procalcitonin is not available or you can't get a result in a reasonable amount of time, then you're going to send C-reactive protein, CRP, and absolute neutrophil count, ANC. Those are going to serve as your inflammatory markers. Still get the blood culture, but also send the inflammatory marker when called for by the algorithm. And know that these, of course, are not standalone tests. These are additional pieces of information as you're working through the algorithm and assessing the patient. 
And finally, another comment on blood cultures. So in adults, it's common practice to get two blood cultures and you're working them up for sepsis. How many blood cultures do I need in a pediatric patient? Honestly, typically we just get one, unless it's a very, very ill-appearing septic ICU player. Review. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're talking Pete's fever. We've decided that a neonate is 0 to 28 days, and a fever in that group is 38. Almost everybody agrees. A young infant is less than 90 days, and fever there varies on the definition 38 to 38.3 or even 38.5. We raise the issue that prematurity is a problem. You're at higher risk, but there is no good way to factor that in because all of these studies excluded those kids, and you can't just say four weeks premature, take that off their age, apply the rule, because that's just not validated, even though some big sources like UpToDate say do that. Just know that you're out uh, there on your own doing that, but you have to factor in prematurity in some way. And then there's sort of the whole thing that we're talking about, which is, do these kids have serious bacterial illness, which is generally bacterial meningitis, bacteremia, UTI, you know, pneumonia, enteritis, this other stuff? Do they have the much worse one, invasive bacterial infections? And for that, we're talking about bacteremia and meningitis. And so all of the stuff that we're going to talk about in terms of risk stratifying and doing blood cultures and CBCs and urines and stuff is really about this concept of occult serious illness, that this kid, while they look good, actually have bacteremia or an early meningitis or something bad. And we need a scoring system to help us find out who they are. So this whole thing in pediatric fever is based on that fundamental concept. The vast majority of kids are fine. With a fever, they do fine. But there is a small subset that don't. If you take out the kids that look sick, there's a group of kids that look well, have something bad. And we're going to try and find them. Chapter 3. History and Exam. Let's go through now the non-toxic appearing child and what is important to gather on your history and physical for these patients. So for many of these patients, they may have a fever, they may look well, and most of them are going to have something viral. A smaller group of them aren't going to have something viral, though. They have a serious bacterial infection or an invasive bacterial infection, and that is who we're trying to screen for. The rates are pretty high in this age group. Neonates, about 20% with a fever, are going to have a serious bacterial infection. If you look at all comers under 90 days, it's about 8 to 12%. Remember, these, though, are kids who are toxic-appearing as well as well-appearing. The well-appearing child has a significantly lower risk of having a serious bacterial infection, but not low enough to let it go. So all of these kids are going to get some type of a workup looking more closely for these serious bacterial infections. Let's talk about the history. So what information is the baby going to tell you? None. <laughs> if you're lucky, that's good. If they're yeah. crying, that's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what information are you going to get from the caregiver? Well, the obvious one here is the fever. So not just did they have a fever, but like you mentioned, how did you take the temperature with the rectal temperatures being the most accurate? As you mentioned, a tactile fever is still concerning. And another thing that I always ask is about the feeding. I mean, first of all, it is up to me to get some sense of whether or not that kid is able to maintain their hydration status or if that's something that I'm going to have to do for them. And sometimes even when I know the fever is due to something like bronchiolitis and I'm not searching for the cause, I may still have to admit that child just because they're not feeding well enough to maintain their hydration at home. So that's important to me. But the other thing it really gives me a sense of is how well that child's doing. Kids don't do a lot, right? Your average neonate sleeps like 18 hours a day. What am I going to do? Ask the parents, did they sleep 19 yesterday? It's very difficult. So things like arousability when you try to wake the baby up and how well they're feeding and how well they're crying 
Those are some of the few parameters that we have to work on to get a sense of how ill this kid is. When they only do three things, we should assess how well they're doing those Well, they also poop. I guess you could ask about pooping, (laughs) although that's a little bit less dependent on their state of well-being. And then, of course, the birth history is also very important for multiple reasons. So we want to know if this baby was born full term or were they premature and how premature were they and were they in the NICU? Because we know that prematurity is a risk factor for serious bacterial infections. And importantly, kids who were premature were not included in any of the studies that we've talked about or any of the algorithms. There is some stuff here that really is going to change my management. So if a kid was in a NICU for a prolonged period of time, I'm thinking more about exposure to staff, particularly MRSA, and I may not necessarily be covering for that if I didn't have that history. Similarly, HSV. Did the mom have HSV? Does she have active herpetic lesions? Was the child a vaginal birth? Because I may not give every one of these kids a cyclovir, but if you just told me that you had this baby through active herpetic lesions vaginally, I'm giving them a cyclovir whether they have a fever or not. So these are things that really may change my management. And finally, do they have viral symptoms? So does the baby have a cough? Is snot pouring out of their nose? Do they have symptoms that suggest that they're having bronchiolitis or a viral infection? Yeah, we do know that kids who have bronchiolitis in all of these age groups, kids that do have the flu, their risk of serious bacterial infections is lower. Does that mean I'm going to do nothing? No, it doesn't mean I'm going to do nothing. But there are certain tests that we may be able to obviate if we have a great history for bronchiolitis or a great history for influenza. Let's go through some of the exam findings that are going to be important. So, of course, just the general appearance. What does this kid look like when you walk in? And some of the red flags are a lethargic appearing kid or irritable. I was taught to never write those words on a chart unless I thought the kid was really, really sick. Like you don't use the word lethargic unless they're difficult to arouse and ill-appearing, right? And unless you're going to pursue it. I mean, don't write lethargic and then say, plan discharge home after antipyretics. If you really think the kid's lethargic, there's no reason not to write it. But if you really think the kid's lethargic, there's also no reason not to do a full workup and to address that symptom. You know, one nice thing, though, about neonates, because like I said, they're asleep most of the day, is they actually typically do have decent tone. I know they can't hold their own head up, but If you hold them upside down in your hands so they're like prone, like as if they were on their bellies, they actually should be able, even shortly after birth, to kind of hold their head in line with the rest of their body. And if you suspend them vertically, like as if you're holding the kid up in the same position you are looking at that baby, they typically, if they're awake, will pull their little legs up and hold them in a flexed position. If they're not doing that, if they're just floppy or their head is flopping down even when you're holding them in a prone position, that is poor tone. And it may be a congenital tone issue, but more often we just see that in a really sick neonate, perhaps a kid who has sepsis. A good rule of thumb when examining a baby is to get them naked, all clothes come off, undress the baby and examine them from head to toe. So going from head to toe, you're going to look at their fontanelles which should be soft and flat when the baby is upright and and quiet. Maybe not if they're screaming, but upright and quiet should be a soft fontanelle. If it's bulging, then you'd be maybe more concerned that they have meningitis, perhaps. And if it's sunken, then you should be concerned that the kid is dehydrated. Maybe they're not eating. They're not taking anything by mouth. Or maybe they're third spacing because they're septic. But I do feel like I frequently will get called into a room to assess a child's fontanelle. And the kid will be lying down, often in the mom's arms, but relatively supine. 
and somewhat fussy. And so you really do to make that assessment. If you're tapping based on the Fontenelle appearance, you really need to get that kid upright and quiet and calm. And then you can assess the Fontenelle. On the skin exam, you're looking for a source. You're looking for an infection. So do they have cellulitis? Do they have an abscess? Are there vesicular lesions that suggest that they're having a herpetic outbreak? And one thing that you mentioned, Eileen, that could easily be missed is looking in the scalp. Definitely look in the scalp. Make sure there aren't lesions. Ask about a scalp monitor. And while you're looking at the skin, take a look at the joints as well. Septic hips are not an uncommon source in neonates. So look at the skin and move all of those joints around. Make sure there's no red flags there. You can look in the mouth for lesions as well. Certainly looking in the eyes. A lot of herpes will present with conjunctivitis initially. You can look for otitis media. It's really hard to see in these little kids. And I don't know if I would totally write off a fever just for otitis media. And definitely look for signs of bronchiolitis. I mean, it's not going to be subtle. A bronchiolitic kid is going to be pouring pus out of their nose and they're going to be spitting it all over you as they cough. So you don't have to look real hard to get at those, but definitely something to take note of. One thing that can be tricky in neonates especially is that if they have an undiagnosed congenital heart disease, that sure looks like a septic baby. Well, and it actually may cause a septic baby because a lot of these types of congenital heart disease, when the ductus closes, it can cause systemic shock. And so it would not be that unusual for that systemic shock to then cause perhaps ischemia of the bowel, translocation of bacteria, and sepsis. So certainly, you're right. If you have an ill-appearing neonate and that's all you know, that kid is undifferentiated and they could have an inborn error of metabolism. They could have a GI catastrophe. They could have anything. If you have a high fever and you're fairly certain that this is infectious, definitely make sure that they don't have evidence of systemic shock. They don't have evidence of heart disease because those two things certainly can go together. So the take-home point here for exam is be very thorough. Undress the kid and look at everything head to toe to see if you can find a clue of where the infection's coming from. Review. You got to get a good history of that fever. When was it? How did you take it? It's really important. But we do know that just sort of a tactile temperature, mom thinks, dad thinks, somebody thinks, the kid is hot. You still got to put some credence in that as well. And then birth history. You know, was this a normal delivery? Was there any prematurity here? Did the baby go straight home? Did they go via the NICU for a week? What were the screens of the mother, for example? And other things like, is the kids got a cough run rear? Are other kids in the house that are sick or not sick? When it gets to the exams, the key one is your general gestalt. Does the kid look sick or not sick? Lethargic is the key term. That's bad. We don't like that. Strip the baby naked and look at everything. Look at the fontanelles. Look at the skin. Look in the ear, nose, and throat. Check the lungs. Move the joints. Check that skin again. And check for tone. Flip the baby up on their uh, belly on your hand. Can they move around? Do they have some tone? That's uh, kind of a key thing. So it's really about, again, we've said this many times on C3, you want to paint the picture. I really know what this kid is like now and was before. And it's a lot easier in kids than it is in adults because they can basically do three things, particularly the little ones, is that they can eat, they can poop, and they can sleep. Okay, they can interact. So get a feeling for how is that? Has that changed? Is there something really, really different? Like the kid just like never sleeps and used to sleep all the time or sleeps all the time and used to wake up three or four times a day or won't interact, won't sort of interact with the environment at all, but used to? These are the things. Paint. Picture. I think in one of the earlier shows I mentioned, we don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. 
Chapter 4, 0 to 8 Day Olds. Now it's finally time to talk about those guidelines that I've been promising you from the American Academy of Pediatrics. We're going to take a listen to an interview that Jesse Werner did with Eileen Claudius. And before they even get to that first algorithm, they're going to tell you who it even applies to and also who it doesn't apply to. The main group that's excluded here is infants that are zero to eight days old. Yeah. Can you believe it? They're not even in that guideline. Not at all. So we still have to have an approach to them. Let's hear what they have to say. Right. Well, first of all, let's clarify the age group because I think, honestly, that is the most important part of this discussion. Who are we talking about here? So this is a guideline for infants aged 8 to 60 days who have a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or above. And there are specific inclusion and exclusion criteria, and I really want to highlight two of them. This is for well-appearing neonates. If you are ill-appearing, if you are floppy, I mean, more floppy than another, you know, seven-day-old, <laughs> if you're eating poorly, you're lethargic, you're modeled, you have a heart rate of 180, this is not the guideline for you. And I've noticed over time, we somehow tend to extrapolate guidelines intended for well-appearing patients to patients that are kind of okay appearing, but not really well, or even patients who really look like crap. And that's not the intent of this. This is a very vulnerable group, and it is really for kids whose parents are saying to you, I just checked the temperature because they felt hot. Otherwise, this kid looks fantastic and has been doing well at home. Of course, sure, if they have a cold, you can still apply this to them. But for the most part, this has to be for the well-appearing child. The other big exclusion criteria are children who were preterm. So in this guideline, it's defined as less than 37 weeks, which is also the official definition. This population is at much higher risk. And again, the errors I have seen in applying previous guidelines have been often when a guideline intended for a term infant is applied to a preterm infant. Preterm infants should make you afraid that they are at higher risk for everything than term infants, especially early on. So if the kid was 36 and a half weeks and you really want to apply this, don't do it. I mean, this is a very generous guideline and let's keep it for the group that it was intended for. It also excludes any child under two weeks of age whose mother had an infection or received antibiotics as well as any child who themselves had an infection. It also excludes kids who have overt herpetic disease. Obviously, if you're covered head to toe with vesicles, we're not gonna apply a low-risk guideline to you. Kids who have focal infections, kids with clear bronchiolitis, medically fragile children like those with syndromes, immunosuppressed kids, post-surgical kids, kids who have just gotten their first set of shots since about 40% of those are gonna have a temperature of 38 degrees or above 48 hours after their shot. What about those less than eight day olds? We're just doing the same thing that we used to do for those guys because they're so high risk? Yeah, just admit them. Seriously, just do everything and admit them. Don't mess around with those kids. Let's be very clear with what that means to quote unquote do everything, that full sepsis workup. What does that mean? It means you're gonna poke the kid to get a blood culture. And of course, you're gonna send off other labs too, including a CBC and also inflammatory markers. Remember, that's procalcitonin or CRP if you don't have procalcitonin. Not like that's gonna change anything you do, but it might be helpful on the inpatient side if they choose to trend it. You're going to get a catheterized urinalysis. 
and urine culture. You have to do the lumbar puncture. You need that CSF. So I'm sorry, but you have to do it. If the child's having diarrhea, then you can send stool studies. If they're having upper respiratory symptoms, get a chest x-ray. And then as you're getting results back, that CSF shows a pleocytosis, consider sending an HSV on that CSF as well. Then start antibiotics and admit the child. Chapter 5, 8 to 21 day olds. Let's take a listen to Eileen Claudius talking about that first algorithm, the 8 to 21 day olds. So there's a couple recommendations for this age group. And obviously this is the most conservative age group and very similar to what we used to do. So for these kids, number one, get a catheterized or a suprapubic sample for your urinalysis. And interestingly, they actually mention a preference toward a suprapubic specimen. I'm certainly not recommending that. Although if you've never done one, it's kind of fun. You should probably do one once. I don't think the parents love it quite as much. And just so you guys know, they define a positive urinalysis as any leukocyte esterase greater than five white cells per high power field if your urine is centrifuged, greater than 10 if it's uncentrifuged, and then send a urine culture as well. This is probably the biggest one because about 10% of febrile infants this age are going to have a UTI. So we don't want to forget the urine. Go ahead and get a blood culture. And even if the patient has a UTI, you still want to pursue it further. Because in this particular age group, the risk of having bacteremia is going to be pretty high if you have a UTI. The blood culture will be positive in about 20% of young infants in this age group with a UTI. So regardless of your urine results, go ahead and get a blood culture. In terms of inflammatory markers, it's interesting. In this age group, it's not going to change your management much. So things like the white cell count, the ANC, the CRP, the procalcitonin, you are certainly welcome to get them and they may guide somebody else's management down the road. And so if that's the practice of your inpatient pediatrics team, by all means, that's something we need to work with our colleagues on. But for us on the front lines, they are not gonna change what we do. So if you don't wanna get them, eh, it's kind of up to you. And then in this age group, the risk of bacterial meningitis is somewhere between 0.5 and 1.3%. So get a lumbar puncture, send it for bacterial studies. If there is a CSF pleocytosis or risk factors for herpetic disease, then go ahead and send the HSV PCR. And if you're in the right season, so the summer, go ahead and send it for enterovirus as well. A lot of places have a full viral panel and you just get everything, but those are the ones that are particularly addressed in this guideline. And then go ahead and start antimicrobials. Remember, E. coli is now the leading pathogen. Group B strep has fallen to a relatively distant second, but it's still important enough that we have to consider it. And in general, this is going to mean starting ceftazidime because remember, cefotaxime is being discontinued. So we've kind of moved to ceftazidime for IV and ampicillin. If you have a lot of E. coli resistance in your community, you might want to consider gentamicin if the patient seems like they might be bacteremic and meropenem if you have evidence of meningitis. And then of course, if you're sending the HSV PCR because you're concerned about HSV, you probably wanna go ahead and start acyclovir as well. So is this different than what we did before? Not a lot, to be perfectly honest with you. It's very clear. It's very well laid out. They've taken into account the discontinuation of cefotaxime. 
And they have taken into account the very obvious fact that the inflammatory markers don't really change what you do. And so for us to continue to send them is more of a physician choice at this point. Review. Short and sweet, eight to 21 days old, you're basically gonna do everything. Your analysis and urine culture, blood culture, lumbar puncture and CSF studies. Inflammatory markers are plus minus, but you know what? I'm going to send them because I know that a lot of pediatric hospitalists will trend them. Consider the risk for herpes simplex and add antivirals as needed. And once again, just like with the zero to eight day olds, you're going to start empiric antibiotics and admit the patient. Chapter six, 22 to 28 day olds. Let's talk about the 22 to 28 day old. So that is the fourth week of life. I think that this is the biggest change in the guidelines because for a long time, we have lumped together kids that are zero to 28 days. And we all know that a kid in the first week of life or the second week of life, those two children are very different. A kid who's getting up to day 26, 27, and 28 days, are they more like a two-day-old or are they more like a 29-day-old? I think they're probably a little bit more like a 29-day-old, but we know that the risks of invasive bacterial infections are lower in this age group than in the kids that are closer to birth. And so this is a really big change in the guidelines. So if you focus on the kids that are 22 to 28 days, which understandably is a very narrow range, the urine recommendations are going to be the same other than if you get your initial urinalysis specimen with a bagged specimen or a clean catch specimen, and that is positive, you need to go back and get a cath or a suprapubic specimen for culture. Because in this age group, I think sometimes people will do one of those provoked techniques, the bladder tapping or something like that and get a clean catch, or the parents will insist on a bagged specimen. And if that is the case and that's positive, it's most likely to be a false positive. So go back and get a catheterized specimen or a suprapubic. I keep saying that because I have to. No one's ever going to really do it. Totally. For your culture. You obviously want to get a blood culture. And here is where the inflammatory markers get a little bit more important. And I'm going to go over those inflammatory markers in a minute. But first, let's talk about why they're important. If any of the inflammatory markers are positive, then we're going to get a lumbar puncture. If all of the inflammatory markers are negative, at that point, there is a little bit of wiggle room for the physician, either autonomously or using shared decision-making with the family can actually consider not getting a lumbar puncture. And so that's why the inflammatory markers become of paramount importance here. Now, if you're gonna do a lumbar puncture in this kid anyway, that is certainly reasonable and certainly within the guidelines. And in those cases, the inflammatory markers become less relevant. But if you have a parent who is saying, there is no way you're doing an LP on my child and I have a relative in some other country who died after a spinal tap and is paralyzed forever. And those stories you always hear that make you think that there must be legions of paralyzed children somewhere else because of all these <laughs> terrible lumbar punctures, then in that case, the inflammatory markers can be really helpful. So these are the inflammatory markers that they talk about. They actually include temperature sort of in their discussion of inflammatory markers. And they acknowledge that if you have a temperature above 38.5, that's when you want to really start thinking of that as kind of a positive inflammatory marker, as a marker that the risk of a serious bacterial infection is going to go up. They do cite a study that showed an odds ratio of 1.8 for every degree Celsius above 38. I don't know if that's something that I'm going to remember to the point that I can incorporate it in my practice, 
but I can sort of think, you know what, above 38.5, we're probably doing an LP. They looked at white cell count and did not recommend using this for risk stratification. Now, I kind of have mixed feelings on this. Obviously, if you have an elevated white cell count outside of five to 15,000, so very low or very high, there are studies like PROS that showed an odds ratio of 3.6. So I would still take that a little bit seriously, but I think the point is that the converse is not really applicable. If the white cell count is between five to 15,000, that really isn't that reassuring. There was one study that gave that an area under the curve of 0.48. So to say that this kid has a normal white cell count and I don't need to worry, that's folly. And so for those reasons, they suggested not using the white cell count as an inflammatory marker. On the other hand, the ANC, the absolute neutrophil count, that might be helpful. And they gave the clinicians an option of a cutoff of 4,000 or 5,200. And they discussed the literature based on either of those. CRP, the cutoff is at or above 20 milligrams per liter. And the area under the curve for that is about 0.75, 0.77. So it's pretty good. Procalcitonin is probably the best. And the cutoff there is greater than 0.5 nanograms per ml. It's important though to recognize that any of these inflammatory markers are not fantastic as a standalone representation of whether or not this kid has a bacterial infection. For example, procalcitonin, even being the best, still misses meningitis in about 20% of cases. Yikes. And so if a child has any one of these inflammatory markers abnormal, that's somebody that you want to really consider taking the next step and doing the lumbar puncture. So just to kind of emphasize what you're pointing out here, Eileen, the big differences in this particular age group is that, again, in the past, all these kids were lumped together with this, you know, early zero to 28 days. Everyone was grouped together and everyone received a lumbar puncture and we weren't necessarily getting all of these inflammatory markers. So now the big change is we are getting inflammatory markers and we're using those to help risk stratify and decide whether or not we truly need a lumbar puncture. Absolutely. So temperature above 38.5, ANC greater than 4,000 or 5,200, CRP 20 or above, procalcitonin above 0.5, any of these, I would do an LP. If all of those are normal, then you can consider, possibly in conjunction with the parents, not doing the lumbar puncture. Now, let's say we do our lumbar puncture and the results come back normal. Let's talk a little bit about disposition. So there's kind of four categories these patients can fall into, right? There's the patient in whom you've clearly identified an infection, whether it's a urine infection, a meningitis, you've obviously identified an infection. These patients are going to be admitted and given parenteral antibiotics. Then there's the group where you haven't clearly identified an infection, but the inflammatory markers indicate to you that an infection might be likely, and these patients are also going to be admitted for parenteral antibiotics. Then there are the kids where you have done everything, including the CSF, even though the inflammatory markers were negative, which is a reasonable way to go, and you decide to send these children home. And if you're sending a child home and you've done the CSF and you've done all of the inflammatory markers and everything is negative, 
that is a child that you probably want to give a dose of ceftriaxone to, send them home with very good precautions and a 24-hour follow-up recheck. And the last category are the kids for whom you have done everything except for the CSF. So the child who you did the inflammatory markers, they were all negative and you decided not to do the CSF. And for those kids, they give the interesting option in their flowchart that you can administer parenteral antimicrobials, but don't necessarily have to and observe in the hospital. So it's a little bit unusual and the dispo and the antibiotics are very different. So obviously someone who you've identified an infection or the inflammatory markers are abnormal, you think there's an infection, hospital IV antibiotics. Someone in whom you've identified no infection and no risk of an infection can either go home with antibiotics or stay in the hospital with or without antibiotics. So for me, I think just to simplify this, I'm probably going to lean towards doing everything and admitting to the hospital similar as before. But it's nice to know if there's some reason that the family really needs to get this kid home, they don't feel comfortable bringing the child into the hospital, there are some options if everything is totally normal. So that's kind of nice. And it's also nice to know that there are some instances where we may be able to spare the lumbar puncture as well. Yeah, I think it really gives you a good landscape to sort of start doing shared decision-making because there are families for whom not getting that lumbar puncture is the goal. Like that is their main concern. Additionally, there's patients in whom you can't get the lumbar puncture. I mean, 30 to 50% of the time we mess this up. We either get a dry LP or we get so much blood in our LP, it's not really interpretable per se. And so in those cases, it's nice to be able to say, okay, we're going to stop. We're not going to try again. Or this is really important to you. We're not going to do the lumbar puncture. As long as everything else looks okay, urine inflammatory markers. But the caveat is your kid is going to need to stay in the hospital for a day or two of observation. On the other hand, if I were a parent bringing a febrile child in this age group into the hospital, my main goal would be not to have my kid stay in the hospital just because that's me. And in that case, I'd be like, sure, go ahead. I've had LPs. I've done LPs. I'm not scared of the LP. Go ahead and do the LP. But if that's negative and all those inflammatory markers are negative, my priority is going home. And then there's clinicians who are going to say, hey, I don't see a lot of kids. My priority is just making sure I don't miss anything. This kid is getting an LP and they're getting admitted to the hospital and they're getting antibiotics for 24 to 36 hours until I know all these cultures are negative. And any of those options are okay in this age group. When we do a lumbar puncture and it comes back bloody or we have a traumatic tap, what do we do with that? There are some things that you could do to try to interpret it a little bit better. I think if the LP is traumatic and there's absolutely no white cells or very few white cells, and remember, we tolerate a slightly higher white cell count in the youngest of children, so that varies with age and that would be a good thing to look up. There's a graph in this paper that may be useful to have on your phone if you do need to look up how many white cells are acceptable in each of these different age groups. Under about 10,000 red cells, you should probably just interpret it as it is. Look at the number of white cells, and if it's meningitis, it's meningitis, or if it's a pleocytosis, it's a pleocytosis, I guess would be a better way to put it. If it's over 10,000, some people would correct for the red cells. There certainly is literature on that. I think this age group, We're so new to the option of even 
considering sending them home or considering not putting them in the hospital with antibiotics, I sort of feel like unless I got a really good tap and I felt really comfortable there was no pleocytosis, I would probably just play it on the conservative side. HSV in this age group, just a reminder, is similar to prior, where if we suspect it, we're going to be testing for it. Correct. Review. Once again, this is 22 to 28-day-olds who are well-appearing but febrile. And the key change here is that inflammatory markers have suddenly become more important because they could potentially help us to avoid having to perform a lumbar puncture. Now, if you want to do the lumbar puncture, that is not wrong. Not at all. You can go ahead and do it. But if you don't want to do it because perhaps the parents feel very strongly that they really don't want their child to go through the procedure, there is a potential way to avoid it. Everything else has to be normal, though. And every single inflammatory marker that you sent has to be stone cold normal. If it is and you don't do the lumbar puncture, then you have the option of giving some IV antibiotics and observing in the hospital. Chapter 7, 29 to 60 day olds. The last algorithm that the AAP provides us with in their 2021 guidelines is what to do with the well-appearing but febrile 29 to 60 day olds. This, I would like to say that this is a big change, but there was so much variability before and so many different guidelines that people could use that depending on what you were doing before, this may be a huge change and it may not be a change at all. So in terms of urine, the recommendations are the same as the prior age group. Go ahead, get the urine. If you get it by a bagged or a clean catch specimen and it's abnormal, then confirm it with a culture on a catheterized or suprapubic specimen. The difference here is they do make the caveat that once you're beyond a month of age, circumcised boys have a low urinary tract infection rate, less than 1%. And so in this particular group, UTIs may not necessarily be such a big issue and you could potentially not apply that to circumcised boys. Getting your urine's not a big deal and I think most of us still would get it even if a boy is circumcised. But if the parent's like, no, no, absolutely don't catheterize my child. It's the worst thing on earth that I could possibly imagine. <laughs> and the kid is circumcised, eh, you could probably not do it. We're gonna get the blood culture. We're gonna get the inflammatory markers. And then again, we're back to the may get CSF. So again, here there's a couple groups. If the inflammatory markers are positive, you may perform the lumbar puncture, but it's not necessarily required. Obviously, the more abnormal the inflammatory markers are, the higher the risk for the child having some invasive bacterial infection. But if one inflammatory marker is a little bit abnormal, they don't necessarily say you have to have to do the LP. If the inflammatory markers are all negative, you need not perform the LP even if the urinalysis is positive. This is based on the overall understanding that there is about a 90% sensitivity for invasive bacterial disease of the inflammatory markers. And when we think that overall, the risk of meningitis in this age group is about 0.25%, with that sensitivity, if all your inflammatory markers are negative, the chance of missing a case of meningitis in a patient with negative inflammatory markers is about 0.025%, which is really encouraging. So let's go through treatment and disposition group by group. 
starting with the children who had an abnormal inflammatory marker. Now, these kids overall as a group have a bacteremia rate that's about 3.2%. This is compared to a 0.2% bacteremia rate for children with negative inflammatory markers. So we're going to be a little bit more cautious with them. Obviously, if you do the lumbar puncture and they have meningitis, clearly you're going to admit them with parenteral antibiotics. If the CSF is negative or just shows enterovirus, regardless of whether the urinalysis is positive or negative, these children can get parenteral or oral antibiotics and can be observed either in the hospital or at home. If you have a child with abnormal inflammatory markers and you don't have CSF, either it was refused, you chose not to get it, or for whatever reason you couldn't get an adequate tap, these kids should get a dose of parenteral antibiotics and be observed either in the hospital or at home. I have to say I'm not sure I am ever going to be brave enough to send this child home. Nonetheless, that's technically what the flow chart in the paper shows. Is your head spinning? Are you drowning a little bit in if-this-then-that types of scenarios? Well, then you're normal, because this is really not something that you can memorize, so please don't try to memorize it. In fact, the only thing that you actually need to memorize here is the fact that these algorithms or flowcharts exist. That's all. Just know that they exist. They're there. They're there to support you. So when you come across the scenario, you pull up the algorithm and you follow it. It's evidence-based. It's supported by major societies, and just know that it is there to help you out. So keep listening to all the great things that Eileen has to say here. Remember, forest for the trees. Don't get lost in the trees. The weeds? The weeds. The trees. Either one. No, you're mixing idioms. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Now let's look at the slightly safer group, the kids with negative inflammatory markers the kids with the 0.2% risk of bacteremia and 0.025% risk of meningitis. These children don't necessarily have to have had a CSF obtained and probably haven't. If their urinalysis is positive, you can send them home with oral antibiotics if that is your choice with the family. And all these kids should get very close follow-up within 24 hours. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. And they actually put 12 to 24 hours if you send somebody home with a urinary tract infection. If the urinalysis is negative, these patients can be observed at home without antibiotics with a 24 to 36-hour follow-up. Now, one of the questions that always comes up with these kids is, well, if you have a UTI, are you still doing the lumbar puncture? And the literature that we have on this kind of shows that the risk of having meningitis is pretty equivalent in a group of kids that has a UTI versus doesn't have a UTI. Now, we don't have any literature specifically looking at these small individual age groups. Then in kids under 60 days, it's about a 1% chance of having meningitis with a fever if you don't have a UTI and about 0.8 if you do have a UTI. So the risk doesn't change that much based on the UTI. So I would say if you were going to do the LP anyway, you probably want to do the LP. If you weren't going to do the LP anyway because the kid's inflammatory markers are normal and they look good and you're not particularly worried, in that case, the presence of a urinary tract infection probably shouldn't modify what you were going to do vastly. 
The last thing I'll say, and this is just because every family asks me, how long is Micah going to be in the hospital for? And typically I've said, well, usually it's about 48 hours until we know that all the cultures are negative. And what they're now saying is that about 85% of pathogens are going to grow within 36 hours in a bacteremic infant. And so depending on the inflammatory markers and depending on how the kid is doing well in the hospital and what cultures grow, they are now suggesting that discharge is possible within 24 to 36 hours. So it is humanly possible that the kid might be discharged within 24 hours. And so that's relevant much more to our colleagues upstairs than to us as the frontline providers. That having been said, it's not necessarily a sentence of two or three days in the hospital for this kid. It might be an OBS admission. It might be a day. It might be a day and a half. And so for us who need to interface with the parents and determine if this child is going to go to an inpatient admission versus an observation admission for insurance reasons, if that's relevant for our population, these kids are going to be in the hospital if they look great and don't have anything grow out for a lot less time than they historically have been. Thank you so much, Eileen. Once again, folks, this is a very visual concept. Pull up that algorithm and follow along during the discussions on this. And of course, in real life, when you're actually taking care of a febrile infant, follow the algorithm. What's different here that I think is significant is now we can rely on these inflammatory markers to help us with our diagnostic pathways. And there are some cases now with good evidence to support not having to necessarily do a lumbar puncture. But don't make up your own rules. Follow this evidence-based algorithm. Chapter 8. Deep Dive. Treatment. So if you're still with us at this point, we've talked about the really sick kids. We've talked about the history, the exam. And then we've gone through these very specific algorithms supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics for the workup and management of young infants of different ages. But one thing that's a little bit weird about these algorithms is that they just basically say administer, quote, antimicrobials. Mm, which ones? Which ones should I administer? Well, you could go to the Corpendium chapter for some guidance there, but I think we should spend a minute talking about what pathogens we're actually worried about and what antimicrobials treat those pathogens. If it is a very young infant with bacteremia, the infection was coming somehow from the mom, somehow from the birth canal. And so what we are typically talking about for the big three in neonates, group B strep, E. coli, and I believe actually E. coli is number one now, so I probably should have said that first. And we still consider listeria one of the bigger infections, although we've really got this under control. We have not seen a lot of listeria infections recently in neonates. But be aware, neonates can also have staph. Certainly if they were in the hospital, in the NICU, and exposed to that, they can have staph aureus. And even if they weren't hospitalized, it's a possibility as well. They can have MRSA. Salmonella can cause systemic bacteremia in kids under six months. So certainly consider that if they have signs of enteritis. Klebsiella is possible. We talked about HSV. The immunizations that we're giving older children certainly have reduced the amount of bacteria. But remember, things like strep pneumo, they really only make up about 3% of bacteremia in young infants. It's a very small percentage. So the immunizations have not helped that much, but still keep it on your differential. As the kids get older and nearing the end of that 90-day period, the pathogens that we see in older children and adults, like strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitis, 
become more common. And as far as viruses go, these are seasonal. So in the summer, enterovirus is more common. And in the winter, RSV, of course, is more common. Okay, great. So those are the pathogens. Now let's go through the different empiric antibiotics and antivirals that you would use in those different age groups, which, of course, corresponds to these pathogens. And let's start with the neonates. So in that 0 to 28-day group, we're still covering listeria, so we give ampicillin. And luckily, ampicillin will also cover group B strep, which is one of our big ones. Cefotaxime will also cover strep. Of course, cefotaxime has been discontinued. So if you no longer have this in your hospital, something like ceftazidime is a reasonable replacement. It will cover H. flu and E. coli as well. So if you look at, if you're mostly targeting E. coli, group E strep, and this possibility of listeria, ampicillin and cefotaxime is a great combination. Some people have done ampicillin and gentamicin, and that seems to work very well, particularly in the younger ones. That's an option. Ceftriaxone is not considered an option in kids under one month. It will work in terms of antimicrobial efficacy, The problem is it has some side effects that actually can worsen jaundice by kind of knocking bilirubin off of the binding sites on the proteins. If I am concerned about HSV, I will add acyclovir. And if I'm concerned about MRSA, I'll add vancomycin in the under 28-day age group as well. So 0 to 28 days, they're getting ampicillin and cefotaxime. And then depending on your clinical suspicion, maybe acyclovir and maybe vancomycin as well. Okay, let's do the 29 to 60-day-olds. If you have a kid who is hospitalized, we're mostly going to go with that same group. I typically will give ampicillin through about six weeks, so that would include some of those 29 to 60-day-olds. And vancomycin and acyclovir in the appropriate setting are considerations as well. The one difference being in this age group, we can give ceftriaxone. So that enables us to potentially manage some of these kids as outpatients, even if we are giving them antibiotics. And sometimes it's a little bit easier in the emergency department to give ceftriaxone. And if you have long wait times for beds, kind of forget about it for a little while. So if you are giving them a dose of ceftriaxone and sending them home, that's fine. But by not giving them ampicillin, you're not covering them for enterococcus or listeria, which is uncommon in this age group anyway. Absolutely. Okay, 61 to 90 day olds. Same kind of thing. I mean, they're less likely to have HSV. So I'm a little bit less worried about isoclavir unless something's really driving me. Again, ceftriaxone or cefotaxime, they're sort of beyond the point that I feel like they need to possibly get ampicillin for listeria. And then they are getting a little bit more likely to have strep pneumo. So if I genuinely think that this person has bacterial meningitis, I have to include the possibility of strep pneumo. So I'm more likely to then come back and bring back in that vanco like I would in an older child or an adult. Great. So 61 to 90 days old, cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, plus or minus vancomycin. Chapter 9. Case. This baby's 47 days old and coming in with a fever. Okay, now pull up the algorithm that you're going to follow. And I want you to ask yourself, as you listen to the case and you listen to the discussion, should we follow the algorithm? Does it apply to this child? Are the right things done for this child? Take a listen. You decide. All right, tell me what happened that brought you into the ER. So... Nyla has had some coughing um, for a couple days, and so... And how many days old is she? She is, let's see, six weeks and five days. Sorry, I'm still going by gestational weeks. 47 days old? Yes. Okay. So she had three shots. The shots obviously does come with the fever, a slight fever. So tell me what happened at home today that made you decide to call your doctor and come to the ER. 
Actually, I didn't even call them. I just came straight just to the ER because her temperature went up to 101. For me as a mom, it's an automatic take her to the ER, especially because she is an infant and because of her coughing. And I did hear a little of a wheezing and her breathing was not consistent. She was having pause in between her breathing as she was coughing. Her milk was, I mean, her full amount that she was drinking. It all came out. Aside from spitting up, has she been taking the milk for a little bit and then when she starts coughing and then it all comes out okay so and has she been making wet diapers like normal no today um she's only had half a quarter of what she would normally build so fever and cough are the main things mm -hmm. and this kind of weird breathing and falling asleep that's atypical for her yes mom brings in her 47 day old otherwise healthy full-term infant who has a cough a fever that's reliable, taken at home, of 101. And let's go to the resident now to hear the exam. And that resident is Dr. Leah Bauer. So she uh, is a very well-appearing six-week-old. Um, she has a nice open uh, fontanelle that is not sunken. Um, she's vigorous, looking around, curious, interactive with mom. Um, she has copious um, nasal secretions. Ears are clear. Um, mouth is clear. No evidence of rash. She has um, clear lungs. Um, is doing a little bit of belly breathing with some subcostal retractions intermittently, but the belly is otherwise soft and non-tender. Um, no rash anywhere that I'm able to appreciate. Um, good cap refill. So overall, your overall gestalt on how this baby looks? Very well appearing. So what's your plan? What do you want to order? What do you want to do? So because we have this report from a very reliable parent um, of a fever of 101 Fahrenheit documented at home, despite the fact that she's not febrile here in the department, we still um, need to do our due diligence and do a workup. Um, so my plan is to get a complete blood count, a CRP, urine, uh, and a chest x-ray uh, in addition to viral swabs. Um, and I have also consulted the pediatrics team for their opinion as well. And you can actually take a look right now and see a video of what this baby looks like if you're on the website or on your app. So let's find out what some of the results were. What's back on the kid? So she has RSV positive, um, which is consistent with this difficulty, a little difficulty breathing and the nasal secretions and the cough. Um, nothing else is, is back yet. And as the rest of the results trickle in, all the blood work comes back reassuring and the chest x-ray is negative. So, Eileen, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts about the way this child looks and about the case overall? I think there's a few really important things on her exam that she brought out that I'd like to mention. And the first is that the kid looked well-appearing and the kid was, I think, smiling, which is nice. This kid is just over six weeks. Six weeks is when a typical child will reflexively start to have a social smile. Some kids smile a little bit younger when they have gas or something, but it's not an actual I social response. I know, right? Who doesn't, really? <laughs> So at this age, you actually can assess the kids a little bit better because they can have this reflexive social smile. And it is somewhat encouraging when a kid gives you a big smile that they probably don't have meningitis. Not 100%, but it's pretty darn good. The other thing is that this kid clinically had a lot of signs of bronchiolitis. So when you look at the studies on this topic, some of them use clinical bronchiolitis, some of them use testing. The results were about the same. But these tests, the respiratory viral panel, can stay positive for a fair amount of time after the infection. Usually RSV stays positive for about a week. It can stay positive for longer. 
Some of them, like human rhinovirus, can stay positive for almost a month. And so if you just told me that you did this testing and it was positive, in absentia of an exam that supported that diagnosis, it would mean nothing to me. Because who knows if they had bronchiolitis last week and now they have a urinary tract infection? I don't know. But the fact that the exam went with the lab results means a lot to me. And I really appreciated that exam. I would have loved to hear some kind of wheezes or washing machine sounds in the lungs, like we described the bronchiolitic kids to have. But the video you showed is pretty compelling. This really does look like a child who probably has bronchiolitis. And so those were really nice things to hear on the exam. So the outcome of this case is that we consulted the pediatrics team that came down and saw the kid, agreed with the workup, and wanted to observe the baby overnight just to make sure that she was doing okay. And just for listeners, I think that that was not an inappropriate way at all to handle this situation. There is a range of what would have been acceptable. There are centers that if you have a good history and you have laboratory-proven RSV, they don't do any further workup. There's centers like my own where we probably would have gotten a urine and sent this child home knowing that this is a very responsible parent who could follow good discharge instructions and bring the child back. And there's other centers that would have been more conservative and done what you guys did or even a complete workup. And all of those are considered in the range of fine. Of course, what I would have done is get a urine, maybe a blood culture, probably not, and sent the kid home with good follow-up. So obviously, I feel like that's the right thing to do. But I think in this area, it's important to recognize that there's a range of what would be correct. And you just kind of have to work with what you're comfortable, your resources, and the parent you have in front of you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. There's not necessarily a right and wrong answer. There's a lot of acceptable options in your plan of care. It's time for Big Stew with a review. Jesse, Jess, Mel, Eileen, wow, that was fantastic. What a great review of the evaluation of the febrile infant up to 59 days. Now, because we had four faculty on this episode and there was review that was spaced throughout the program, I'm not going to go through the mechanics of the algorithms or do any further repeating of the revision because I think that could be a little counterproductive. The point was made very well that these are the kind of guidelines that you can check when you're on shift to make sure that your clinical decisions are in line with the algorithms. Instead, I'd just like to share briefly a couple of perspectives. Jess does such a great job of reviewing the history of this topic, and I think it's really important to have that perspective. Over the past few decades, we really have done a good job of reducing the incidence of life-threatening infections like group B strep and listeria by good prenatal screening and public health measures. And we've also made significant progress on reducing the amount of unnecessary testing and treating with broad-spectrum antibiotics because, as was pointed out, both of those things can have adverse consequences as well. But when it comes to the younger age group that we're focusing on in this segment, all of that comes with a major caveat there is a much higher chance that a well-appearing neonate with a fever is going to be harboring a life-threatening bacterial infection than an older child. And so what that means to us is that we have to be very, very careful about not cutting corners in this youngest age group. Along those lines, I kind of feel like the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the lumbar puncture. It's almost a euphemism for a full septic workup in this age group. And I think that it's also the thing that gives the parents the most pause and concern. And so naturally, uh, there's a big focus on whether or not we can omit the LP in certain cases. And indeed, there's been lots of progress on this front, 
with the age for mandatory LPs steadily going down. And in this most recent guideline, we're given permission, so to speak, to omit an LP in selected patients with negative inflammatory markers as young as 22 days old. Now, the advice that I would give when you're dealing with patients in these intermediate, on-the-borderline age groups is the same advice that I got when I was starting out, which is err on the side of being conservative. It just makes sense. As you gain experience and facility with this, you've seen thousands and thousands of these kids, it becomes more appropriate to choose the less conservative options within the range of options provided by the algorithms. And even more important than diagnostic testing in these infants in the borderline age groups is empiric antibiotics. That's the one critical intervention that you must do when you're not sure. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't finish by emphasizing what I believe to be the most important take-home point in all of this. And it was made several times during the discussion, but because it's the number one source of a bad outcome and of a tragedy in all of this, I think it's worth repeating and ending with. When you look back at the cases with the bad outcomes, you very often find that there was something there, something other than just a well-appearing febrile infant. And what that means to me is that if the mom is saying anything about this infant not acting right, if there's anything on the triage note or anything in the nursing notes that suggests that this behavior is anything other than a normal appearing child with a fever, you have to work them up based on that symptomatology and not enter them into this well-appearing pathway. You just have to be more conservative in these cases. Infants with any type of bacterial infection can become really sick really quickly. That's the number one cause of bad outcomes, and I've seen it many, many times over my career. And over a career, I think that you develop a little more spidey sense for a subtly sick-looking infant or something that mom is saying that makes you realize, hey, there's something a little different. This is not just a well-appearing child. And as you develop that spidey sense, trust it. It's going to help you pick out a few more kids that were going down the wrong pathway of the well-appearing child. And with that, thank you to the team, Jesse, Jess, Mel, and Eileen. That kind of rhymes. We will see you all again for part two, when we cover the older children from 60 days to three years of age. This is Stuart Swadron, and you're listening to C3. Thank you.